Yeah, so I was, I was just struggling this morning. I realized, like, like I got to start stretching and stuff before I do this. And I think, like, I'm getting to the point where uh, physical activity has to be preceded by preparation. You know what I mean? Like, I, I'm not looking forward to the point. Like, right now it's like an intense game of kickball can wear me out. I've heard that it gets to the point where, like, if you move too quick in the shower, your ankle's done. You know what I mean? Or, like... If you roll over too hard in the bed at night, your back is thrown out for like a month. I'm not quite there, but uh, after that game of kickball, I'm, I'm not feeling far away either. Um, so anyway, really excited to be here this morning. I do want to say this is, um, so I was thinking about this. Harvest sang that last chorus, you know, the, it is well, it is well, it is well with my soul. Um, how many of you are familiar with a guy named Horatio Spafford? Anybody? Way to go in the back, Gillums. Horatio Spafford wrote that song. Um, and here's the interesting thing. Uh, and, and I can't hear the song without thinking of the story. And the story is that Horatio Spafford had a wife and four daughters. Um, and at one point he was going to England to visit a friend who was doing ministry there. And he sent his family ahead of him. He sent his wife and his four daughters ahead. And um, on the voyage... Uh, the ship sank, and he received a, a letter that had, in the beginning, it was, it was two lines. The first line was his wife's name, and the second line was survived alone. 226 people died on this ship, four of which were Horatio Spafford's daughters. Um, and so eventually he ends up making the journey to England takes the same route that the ship took um, that capsized and took his four daughters life. And as he reaches um, the area where the ship sank, he sits down and he begins to write a song. And, 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 and one of the verses says, Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control. That Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. And the refrain is, it is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. So as he's going here, the one thing that he can depend on, the one thing that he can trust, the one thing that makes him be able to say, it is well with my soul, is no physical relationship, is no comfort on earth. Uh, It is the fact that he knows who Jesus is and what he's done for him. And even that, like, I can't imagine that. I can't imagine sailing over the water that claimed the majority of my family's life. And more than that, I couldn't imagine sitting down and writing a song and saying, it is well with my soul. And so as we sang that this morning, my, 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 the question that I thought of is, is it well with your soul? Like this morning, as we said, before we even begin what I was going to talk about, um, how, how is it going in the deepest part of who you are? Um, is it difficult? 
Are, are you ha- finding success or struggle, hardship or victory, whatever it is, what that song calls us to, what that one phrase calls us to is saying that no matter what is going on around us, if we can look to Jesus and have a relationship with him and have this tangible realness of his presence with us, it can be well with our soul, too. There's a part in 2 Corinthians where Paul says that he feels struck down. And that just happens, right? I love that phrase, struck down. I mean, so many things can make us feel that way. Personal life, just our own emotional, personal life. If something happens with your family, with your children, with your job... You can feel struck down, but the good news this morning is that there is someone there who can guard our soul. So I just want to encourage you before we begin, we'll have an opportunity to respond later. Actually, let's just respond right now. Um, So we're going to do this. If you just, I mean, this is going to be a real blanket. If you hear that and you're like, you know what, like, it just isn't all that great with my soul right now. Like, I feel struck, I feel like, it's just hard right now. Life is not easy. My circumstances and situations are not what I would consider the best, and it's beginning to affect me. And we're going to talk about the purpose of community, why we actually gather here, but now we, we, before we even do it, we get, we get a chance to act it out. Okay, so if you feel like, if you hear that, you say, you know what, I want it to be well with my soul, but right now I can't say that it is. We, I, I want to pray for you, okay? Can we, we're, gonna, we're just going to actually do that now. So if you would say, after hearing it, you would say, you know what? Whatever it is, whatever the thing may be, if you don't feel like, oh, man, I, just, I can't say it's well with my soul, uh, would you raise your hand? You've got to be brave. Just raise your hand. All right, everybody, just look around. See, hand raised, hand raised. All right, so um, we're going to pray for people right now. So look around. If there's a hand raised around you right now, raise your hand high. It's okay. There's, I mean, hey, look, at some point it's not going to be well with all of our soul, so there's no embarrassment in it not being well with your soul right now. Like, that's just the way it is, all right? Like, there's no, there's, there's no thing in raising your hand. So look around. Everybody look around. Find a hand. And so if you're around, go to somebody with their hand raised right now. Like, get up out of your seat and go. So keep the hand raised. Keep the hand raised. They need to know. Raise it up high. Higher than this. All right. Um, and so here's the deal. We're not going to ask what's going on. We're not going to ask. Here's what I want you to do. I, I think we've all had an experience where we're like, you know what? It's not going well for me right now. I want you to pray for them like you wish somebody would pray for you. Good enough? Got it? All right. So I'm just going to turn you all loose and you all just start praying and then I'll close this out in a minute. Go ahead. Pray.
So, Father, everyone here who is feeling this pressure, everyone here who is feeling the storm swirl around them, I pray that you would give them peace, that right now, by the Holy Spirit, you would give them comfort. I pray they would sense the nearness of Jesus and that right now, actually, they would they would begin to feel peace, like real tranquility in their soul. Um, I pray that you would give them what they need to make it through what they're going through. Um, I pray that you would calm family troubles, that you would provide for financial hardships, um, that you would give perspective and wisdom and work decisions. God, I pray uh, for everyone here who says it's just not going well with my soul right now, that you would guard them and protect them. Give them a measure of your presence that they have never sensed before. And I pray, Father, that right now they would feel comforted. They would feel lifted up. They would feel protected. And we ask this in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Y'all can grab your seats again. Awesome. Oh no. Sorry, Harvest. I knocked these down. So here's the great news about stuff like that. Like, um, in one sense, it's good to know that people are just here for you. In another sense, um, like we actually believe that when we pray for folks, stuff happens. Um, so our, our, our hope is that you actually feel comforted. Our hope is that you actually begin to feel it going well with your soul because you see Jesus um, more clearly than the circumstances that are causing you trouble. Um, Harvest is it OK if I just kind of throw these on the floor. It's the way we do it at the house, too. <laughs> the way I do it at the house. Um, so. I'm going to I'm going to start by reading a big chunk of scripture. Um, and in this is uh, it's in Acts chapter two. And in the part we're going to read is verse 42, which is where we derive our name from. Vintage 242, vintage, something old, of limited quantity and of great value. Acts 242 will actually get to the verse. We believe it's what God has called us to as a community. But more than that, I think this gives us not just. Uh, the name for our church, but it gives us the very idea of who we want to be and how we want to exist. So what we're going to do is we're going to start in Acts chapter 2, verse 1. I'm going to read to verse 14, and I'm going to jump to 37. I'm not saying that stuff in between isn't important, um, but we're going to jump to first, verse 37 and then finish out. All right. So here we go. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. Let's go. When the day of Pentecost arrived... All of the believers were together in one place and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as if uh, as if excuse me as if a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them and they were all filled with the holy spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the spirit gave them utterance and now there were dwelling in jerusalem jews devout men from every nation under heaven and at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in their own language and they were amazed and astonished and they said are not these men who are speaking galileans how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own language the mighty works of God. 
And all were amazed and perplexed. And they said to each other, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they're just filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Now we're going to jump to verse 37. So Peter preaches a sermon, and this is the result of the sermon. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his words were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. If you look on our website, if you go the wonderful website that Harvest was talking about. If you go and you look, there, there's a tab. I think it says our, our, our vision, our mission, something like that. Basically, we're saying this is who we are. This is what we want to do. This is, this is what we believe that God has called us to. And you'll find two words. Community transformation. We believe that God has put us in the place that we are, not by accident, not by coincidence, not by happenstance, but on purpose. So that we can bring transformation to the community we're a part of so we can begin to bring transformation to the places we work, the teams we play on, the schools we go to, the relationships we find ourselves in, the cul-de-sacs we live in, whatever it is, we want to bring transformation and not just any transformation, but specifically we want to see our community look like what we believe it would look like if Jesus was in charge. And that's why we exist We're not mainly about entertainment. If we were, I would be much more entertaining. Um, We're not mainly about giving people stuff to do and filling up busy time. We're saying we want everybody here to participate in the positive change of our community to align it with Jesus' hopes, dreams, and desires for the people and city and county that we're a part of. Um. And we're not shy about that. And we want this this last part right here, verse 47, having favor with the people and the Lord adding to their number day by day, those who are being saved. We we unashamedly want that. We are, are glad to have the idea, the desire, the want to say, you know what? 
We want our city, we want our town, we want our neighborhood, we want wherever we are to be different because we exist and we are here. We believe that Jesus has specific desires for, for our area, for the people in our area. And our goal, our end, our aim is for the, the place that we're a part of to come in line with his desires. Um, like, for instance, I, I help out with a lacrosse team at Alatoona High School. Um, yeah, huzzah. Um, and I went up there this past Thursday, and, and I was kind of surprised because uh, I just thought it was like a really well-protected school. Because there were like 11 police cars and a couple canine units out there. I was like, man, they are serious about protecting these folks out here. Well, it was, I guess now they do like random passings through with drug dogs and stuff like that and parking lots and cars and stuff like that. Um, so for me, one of the things I think community transformation looks like is that is unnecessary. Um, because young people in our area, high school kids in our area, look and say, you know what, I don't really need uh, anything illegal, anything intoxicating, anything that actually causes me to be its servant, its slave. I don't need that to fill, to fill my life as meaningful, fulfilled, has purpose, or feel like I'm worth something. Um, I'm good outside of that. Um, and so those things become unnecessary. So then the police officers that are tied up at Altoona High School can now go to Abney Elementary and help distribute um, all the food that's overflowing from the food pantry to anybody who needs it. Um, that's that to me is something like a, like an evidence of community transformation or when things that we see that we know aren't quite right begin to work themselves out as Jesus would have them because of his influence in our presence. Um, and we say that one of the things we want to do, the, the way that we feel like we get to community transformation is by helping people live their real life. And we, we sort of identify this as our value. We say that real life is when you uh, live the life that God has called you to live. You are who God has called you to be, and you do the things God has called you to do. That's, that's pretty simple, right? Uh, so we say we, we, one of the things we want to do is we exist for our people. Uh, we exist to help you find uh, who God has called you to be and what God has called you to do. Um, and and, and th- that's how you live your real life. And one of the things that we have identified as a non-negotiable for living your real life is saying real life occurs in community. We've named this value, we call it family, because we say it's, it's more than individuals who gather occasionally in a building to do different stuff, to participate in programs in a place run by professionals. That's not it. It's much more like a family than like an organization of individuals. Um, we say we're intentionally sharing life with each other. We're in it even when it's difficult. We're in it when it's even when it's inconvenient because, simply put, we believe we're better together than we are apart. We believe um, that we are stronger, better, more capable, and really function more along Jesus' desires when we are together rather than when we're independent. I mean, you see that in the verse I just read. Um, it would be very difficult to provide for all who had need if you were just a lone ranger. You know, if you, so if you were just sitting here and I looked and I'm like, all right, Jason, Summer, here's the deal. I want you to look around at everybody and by yourselves, I want you to provide for everybody's needs. Any needs they have, I need you to provide for that. That would be difficult, I think. But if we all shouldered that responsibility together and interdependence, well, that becomes a lot more doable. 
the impact we're able to have, the positive change we're able to generate is much greater together than separate. So we believe God has called us to live together as a family. Um, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at what, how he has called us to live. And specifically, um, we've begun this new uh, all-in campaign. So we're, doing, we're saying, you know what, we want to be all-in for this idea of family. We want to be giving ourselves intentionally in community to each other to try to live this out as best as possible. Um, so we're going to look, okay, well, what does this actually look like? What, what should we do? What kind of people should we be? How should we live? Um, and so there are a couple of a couple things from this, and then we'll, we'll look at uh, Romans 12 in a little bit. But um, so the two things that I can, I've concluded from this is what we are as a family is we're a family that Jesus brings together, and we're a family that Jesus keeps together. Now, that sounds pretty simple, but that's, that's what it is. Um, because if you look at this, if you look at uh, all these people who were brought together, it doesn't make sense. It said there were 3,000 people from every nation under the earth that were all of a sudden thrown into close quarters living together. I'm just going to be real. That would be hard. Like, it's difficult. Like, I, I got married almost two years ago. That took a little bit of adjustment. Like I said, I like to throw stuff on the floor. Harvest is not so big on that. Um, Think about if you had 3,000 people all of a sudden in your extended family who didn't speak your language, didn't dress like you dressed, didn't eat the food you ate, all that other stuff. Imagine how uncomfortable and difficult that would get immediately. So this shows us that, that Jesus actually has to do this. He has to bring us together because we don't have enough in common to do it on our own. See, unity is based on what we have in it's based on the common thread that we see in our life and if that common thread is weak then our unity will be weak see a lot of times we think that unity is uniformity we think that to be together we have to be the same and that's just not true I mean, I bet if we took a survey in this room, we would find all different ages. We definitely find different genders. We find different educational levels, different socioeconomic backgrounds. We find all kinds of different stuff. And to say that our, our, our the things we have in common are what are going to bring us together and keep us together and hold us together is foolishness. Because eventually something that is different from you and me is going to offend you and you're going to leave. You're going to be like, look, I, I don't like that. I'm going. But that's if we bank on uniformity, not unity. See, we want unity. We want to say that, that what we have in common in, in Jesus is greater than every, any, uh, any difference we could have. What we have in common because of Jesus is greater than any difference we could have. So that means my dad was joking the other day. He's, uh, he's in this group of guys that meets, and he's like, you know, there's... There's engineers, there's guys who have graduate. I'm just a drywall guy. And I'm like, Dad, but you're a legit drywall guy, though. And so, and so but he's, he's kind of right, though. Like, if you just look at it, based, that group, based on just things they might have in common, probably shouldn't work out. But here's the deal. They have Jesus in common, so it actually works out really well. Because Jesus is stronger than any difference we could have. And see, that's the thing. We look and we say we, we have to we have to differentiate between shallow relationships and strong relationships. See, if we base our relationships on something that can change, then they're shallow. But if we base them on something that is unchanging and strong, then our relationships will be strong. Easy example for me. 
um, it, it, you can't base it on like life stage stuff. Because recently, uh, Harvest and I, we have a lot of friends who are either have kids or have started to have kids, and we don't have kids. But we do have an announcement. We're not having kids anytime soon. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> um, <laughs> my, my dad and Stacy were like, what? <laughs> um, but if, if our relationship with our friends was only based on what we could do with or without kids, well, that'd be a shallow relationship. Because here's what I here's what I realized. Like when I was when I was single, my relationship with my friends was different. It was like it was 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night. Y'all want to go do something? Let's go get back at two, sleep in the next day. It's fine. No big deal. Then, then you get married. It's slightly different. But harvest is a little bit of a night out, too. So we can still do that. But our kids who have friends. Not quite the same. I don't know if you know this. Kids change things. And so our kids, our friends with kids, you know, it's like 1030 on a Friday night. And we're like, you want to go do something? They're like, yeah, we'll do something tomorrow if you can leave by 815. We got to We got We got to get a sitter. We got to do all this other stuff. You know, my guy, guy friends who have kids, it's like, let's go out. Let's go do something. They're like, yeah, I'll stay out till two. If you come back, spend the night in my head, wake up four hours later with a screaming infant in the room next door. I'll let you deal with that. It just changes. Right. Like that can't be the basis you know, if, if, if the basis for our unity is something as simple as a relationship or something as simple as what we have in common or some interest that we have, well, when that changes, our relationships change. And what we're saying is we need something stronger than that to hold, to get, hold us together. The great thing is Jesus is the strongest thing going. And he's what's going to keep us together. He's what holds us together even when our compatibility seems improbable, even when our unity is inconvenient. But we're not just a family that Jesus brings together. We're a family that Jesus keeps together. Because um, he, if he just brought us together and then left us, it'd get real real quick. Just letting you all know. Because when, when, you, when you're in close quarters life, with people who are different than you, if you don't have something strong holding you together, it can turn into the Hunger Games real quick. Trust me, I live in a house. I used to live in a house where there were like nine people there. If we didn't have some similar blood, it would have been Lord of the Flies quick in there. I mean, I think Chase is still recovering from stuff I did him a long time ago, but we're good now. We're good. We're good, right, Chase? <laughs> but I'm telling you, when you get that many people together, when you get this many people together, um, our tendency is not to keep everything great. Our tendency is to drift away from that. Um, especially in church. We, we tr- it gets weird in church. Um, because we get this thing of, like, we'll, we'll do this thing of, like, we'll either be really dependent or really independent. And Jesus don't, doesn't want us to be either one of those things. Uh, Jesus doesn't call us to continue to be independent of one another or dependent on one another. See, when you're independent of each other, that's like, oh, I've tried this, but I've decided that I'm better on my own. Um, I don't really need you in my life. I'm smart enough, capable enough, well off enough, whatever it is, enough to handle my life on my own. I appreciate your effort. I'll, I'll call you if I really need something. And that's sinful. He doesn't call us to that. He doesn't call us to depend on our own strength to be able to run our own life. That's not what he calls us to. But at the same time, he doesn't call us to dependence. He doesn't call us to find someone to base who we are on. And that happens. We make a friend, we enjoy some Bible teaching, we find someone that we connect with, and then that person becomes our identity. If, if they like us, if they speak well of us, if they're close, if things are going well with them, then we're good. But if we're not, then we're not good. 
And we're completely dependent on them to fill out our lives. And he doesn't call us to that either. He calls us not to dependence or independence, but to interdependence. Saying that everyone brings something to the table that is equal in value, worth, and dignity, that is completely original and completely needed, that no one else can supply. And he says, you bring that to the table because everyone needs you, but here's the deal, you need everybody else. And so as he calls us to this, we, we, we walk the line between dependence and independence and say, we're going to live interdependently. Another thing we do, like, another thing that Jesus is real concerned about, I think, is when we create spiritual levels. Like, we're like, you know, you have, like, immature people down here, and then you got most people right here, and then me and my friends, we really get it. We're up here. Our small group is the best. The stuff we do is the best. The things we do are the best. All this, all of us, uh, we're the best because we're, we're, we're the most mature. We're the most learned. We understand the most stuff. We're the most fun, whatever it is. Um, and we kind of create these levels. And Jesus is just not a big fan of saying that people, are, people in the kingdom are better than each other. He's not a big fan of creating hierarchy in the kingdom because um, to create levels means that there are levels of righteousness. And, and the only righteousness that, that we could have, the only way we could do that is if we get the righteousness that we brought with us. And you brought zero. Like, that's the deal. We didn't bring anything to the table. It's, we get what Jesus has. We get to leave our trash at the door, and he covers us with his glory and his great stuff. And that's all we get. That's all we can depend on. And in that, there are no levels because Jesus gives the same to everybody. So no one's better, no one's more than, no one's less than, no one is better in value, dignity, and worth than someone else because we all have the value, dignity, and worth of Jesus. So we don't get to create levels. We don't get to drift that way. In fact, the thing that you'll find is if we have anything in common, if we say that this thing here is the reason we are building our community, this this uh, interest, this commonality, this thing that brings us together, if that's other than Jesus it really quickly becomes an idolatrous relationship that hurts people, wounds people, offends people, and excludes people. Because when you create the club, you get to decide who's in and out. But when Jesus creates the club, he says everybody gets to play, even you. When I, was, I actually read a quote about this when I was preparing. I think it says it actually a lot better than I do. It says, this is what it says. It says, the commonality of the gospel is something believers share that will never change, whether we are single or married, with children or no children, hyper-religious or irreligious, young or old. All believers in Jesus-centered community have a common place to stand together. In fact, if your small groups, journey groups, life groups, Sunday school classes, adult Bible fellowships, or whatever you call them, are not centered on the common need for a common experience of grace, then they are actually doing more harm than good to the gospel movement. If groups are not gospel-centered and gospel-fueled, they are merely a social outlet for people, and they lack the power for transformation. They lack the power for transformation because when we gather around Jesus, we say he's our only hope. We say he's why we're doing this. He's why we're in this together. He's the one who supplies our need. He's the one who's going to meet everything that we have. Give us all that we need. And other than some interest or other common thing that we have uniting us. And we need him to do that. And we need to fight for this. But here's the great news. Jesus wants this more than we do. Jesus wants us to live in unified relationships more than we want it. And so he is continually calling us, transforming us, moving in our lives to make us the kind of people who live in spiritual family with one another that results in community transformation. 
See, Jesus doesn't call us to do new things. He calls us to become new people. Right? He doesn't call us to do new things, to adopt new habits, to, to leave off old hobbies. He calls us to be new people. And as he transforms us and puts us together in relationship, we begin to see that the effect of this in, in our community can't help but spill out out there. So now, like, we could, we could probably stop right here, and my man Austin could come back up here and use his stand that I didn't use and didn't touch, and, and he could come up here, and uh, we, could, we could close out probably through that, yeah, Jesus community, he brings us together and keeps us together. But here's the problem, I don't think we actually learned anything to do. Because um, here's the, Jesus calls us to do stuff. Absolutely calls us to believe stuff and rest in faith, but he also calls us to do stuff. Paul said, um, I am what I am by the grace of God. It is his grace working powerfully within me. But because of this grace, I worked harder than you all. So it's this weird paradox that we don't we don't do anything, but we are responsible. We do expend effort. We do get sweaty in the grace of the gospel trying to become the, the person that Jesus has called us to be. So what kind of person has Jesus called us to be? Um, this is where we're going to go to Romans chapter uh, 12. So just flip over to the right a few pages. And we're going to take I'm, I'm going to do my best to, to with this passage and the passage we just looked at um, to find some things that we can actually begin to do. And hopefully if we do them, it will make us the kind of people that we saw in Acts chapter two, verse 42. And then that will generate community transformation as God ha- has done in the past. So Romans chapter 12, we're going to go verse nine. It says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. So we said that we left to our own. We tend to slide away from who Jesus would call us to be. But thankfully, Jesus keeps us together and transforms who we are and causes us to be new people. Now, what kind of people does he want us to be? I I think this tells us to be a few things. First of all, I think this tells us to be real people. First verse, chapter 12, uh, verse 9, it says, let love be genuine. Let love be. Be genuine. I like one of the books I read when I was getting ready for this. It said, this just means you don't get to wear a mask. It means that because of what Jesus has done, you can feel the freedom of being able to just be yourself. You get to give other people the freedom of being themselves. You don't have to drum up religious words. You don't, you don't have to uh, make up things that are okay in your life. You don't have to make yourself seem better or worse than you are. You get to be yourself. Let love be genuine. Because when we see what Jesus has done, we recognize we don't bring anything to the table. Like if the reason that we're, we're in this community is because Jesus brought us there, then we realized that we, we didn't do anything to get into the club. And really, 
if Jesus brought us in, and Jesus is the president of the club, who can take us out of the club? Sure, not us. So, so he says, this is where you start. Let love be genuine. Be authentic. I think we get in this thing and we get in each other's lives and we start to have all in groups and all this other stuff. One of the greatest temptations is to feel like you have to be somebody you're not to impress people you're trying to get to know. And that's just not true. Like I, 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 I get so discouraged on a regular basis because occasionally I just get a glimpse of like how selfish I am or how like some negative trait, some sinful thing that I see in my life. And I'm like, oh, my God. Gosh, and the temptation is, if this rests on me, is to cover it up so no one else can see it. But it doesn't rest on me. It it, it is not up to me to make myself better. It is up to me to depend on Jesus to give me his spirit that will transform me. And then I live in accordance with his activity in my life. And that frees me. Like... Like last night when I was getting ready for the like actually sitting here, I had words on the page and the Bible opened. Harvest and I got in an argument, one that I started. And and the temptation that like like if if I thought that this depended on me, my, my goal would be to cover that up and never let anyone know. Because because the problem would be, oh, well, that's that's my problem. That means that I'm kind of on a lower peg spiritually. Well, if we look at the gospel and where the gospel says I came from, of course, I have stuff I need to work out. Of course, you have stuff you need to work out. Of course, we're growing in grace, becoming the person that God has for us to be. Of course, we don't have it all figured out. So, of course, stuff is going to come up. We just have to let it and authentically and genuinely be there together. We have to give people that freedom. We have to give ourselves that freedom because it's the freedom that Jesus promises. Second thing, we need to be safe, not soft people. So as we do this, as love continues to be genuine, Paul says, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. So he's saying as you are a completely safe place for people to be themselves, our goal is not to get together, pat each other on the back and say, I'm screwed up, you're screwed up, we're all screwed up together, we don't have to change. No, he says the word here, abhor, means to shiver in fear. So it says when you see something that is contrary to who God has called you to be, it should cause us to shiver in fear. The goal here is not to say, you know what, who we are is okay. Jesus loves us. Let's clap hands and hug each other and just go out and be fine with that. No, it says that Jesus is restlessly and continuously and consistently transforming us, helping us put off sinful patterns and become the person who he's called us to be. So we need to shiver with fear when we see sin in our life, but cling to what is good. And we have to have community to do this. We have to be in relationship with other people. Because here's the deal. I overlook my stuff so easy. Like, I'm so blind to what's going on a lot of times in my life. I need other people in my life saying, hey, man, I'm sorry, but that what you said about you, that doesn't sound like Jesus. You might need to take care of that. And that's a gift to me. That's a gift to you to have somebody who loves you enough to say, you know what, this may be painful, this may be inconvenient, but I'm going to share it with you anyway. Just like if your child was playing in the street, you wouldn't go, man, they might die, but they look fun. That looks fun. Right? You'd be, you'd be, it'd be terrible. 
Like if your child was going to go run across 92 and, and, and just like kind of dance freely while tractor trailers were barreling down a two-lane highway. Who drives a tractor trailer down a two-lane highway anyway? Most annoying thing in my, sorry. It's one of my, you drive on 92 enough, you're like, oh my gosh, tractor trailer. Um, but you don't just let your child go chill out out there. Oh yeah, but they might get mad at me if I bring them off that highway. Yeah, but they'll be alive, right? Like they'll be alive. That's what we want. We don't want happiness. We want holiness. We, we, we don't want to be comfortable with ourselves. We want to be conformed to the image of Jesus. So we need to be safe, but not soft people. And while we do this, we need to be loving people. He says, let brotherly love abound and outdo one another in showing honor. The word brotherly love there means loving someone like you came from the same womb, like you're actually family. He said, love someone, care about them, be invested like they are your family. And while you do this, outdo one another in showing honor. Now, I'm just going to let you all know, I can be slightly competitive. The lat who said that? Thanks, James and Natalie. Last time we played volleyball at my dad's house, I had to give a disclaimer. I had to let everybody who was playing. I said, "Look, I'm as of this moment, I'm no longer on staff at a church. I'm no longer your youth pastor. I'm a volleyball player. So if I do anything that seems insensitive, I'm sorry." Because look, when it's, it's game time, it's game time. I will, I will wear some 17-year-olds out on that sand court, and I will love doing it too. I'm not even scared. So I, you could say I'm competitive. Um, and I'm not sure that Jesus condones that all the time. Some of the time, maybe. All the time, probably not. But one, re, one place he does condone being competitive is outdoing one another and showing honor. He says, I want you to figure out ways to honor one another more than you have been honored. It's like you pull in the parking lot and you're like, where's the furthest space? That's where I'm going. Oh, I live in Bitwater. I'm going to walk. I don't even care. I, you know what? I'm going to sit behind the pole. I'm going to sit behind the pole. I'm going to sit behind the pole because I don't want somebody else to sit behind the pole. I will disadvantage myself so that you are advantaged. It's looking, saying, where is the need? Where is the thing that I can do? Is there some advantage I can give you, even if it means I disadvantage myself? Is there a way that I can help you win, even if it causes me to lose? I want to outdo people in showing honor. Now, how does this happen? Like, we don't want it just to be something where we stack up points, because what we see here is affection and honor are closely related. If you have kindled affections for the people you're in community with, you'll naturally show honor to them. But what happens when you're like, man, all these people are coming to my house tonight. I guess I gotta clean up. It's like you're angry that they're even coming over because it's like, man, that means I gotta like put on all my clothes. <laughs> that means I guess I gotta take a shower. I don't know. But how, so how do we do it when we don't feel like it? And even even more, even more, if there's legitimate hurt, how do we honor somebody if we don't feel like it? Well, he says it. He says. He says, love one another with brotherly affection. 
See, when we understand that we're part of the same family, what that means is that the person who you were loving was bought by Jesus just like you were. He sacrificed everything for them just like he did for you. So when we look at that and we go, oh my gosh, Jesus, this is how you feel about them. This is what you're doing in their life. This is how much you gave for them. We begin to see that our affections for them are kindled. We begin to see that we're like, oh my gosh, okay, I want to I wanna honor them. Because here's the deal. I think one of the greatest problems in living in community is the tendency to get offended at other people. It's, it's just going to happen. Like somebody's going to say something, do something, think something, be something, drive something, buy something, eat something, drink. They're going to do something that you're like, really? <sighs> Whatever. It's, it's just going to happen. But in that moment, we have a choice to say, what defines us? Does our relationship because of Jesus define us? Or does this thing that we have in common define us? And really what we're saying when we allow our offense to break relationship is we're saying my opinion of you is what brings us together. How I feel about you is what causes us to have a relationship. Not Jesus, not this thing, but what I think of you and what you can do for me and how you make me feel. It's all about me. So when you do something that damages how I feel, I have to put you out of my life. And that's not what he calls us to do. He calls us to look at the gospel, be transformed by the work of Jesus, to love our brother and sister and to outdo one another in showing honor. We need to be loving people. We need to be devoted people. In uh, Acts 2, verse 42, the, it says, the first words are, and they devoted themselves. That word devoted has in mind that they gave all of who they are, the best of what they had, to their Christian life. It wasn't something that they just added on. It wasn't something that they just adopted among many things. They gave themselves to it fully. I think this could be one of the greatest things for us uh, who grow up, live, work, play in an area where literally I think I could throw a softball in any direction and probably make it to a church parking lot. Like it's so easy to think that because you're not Jewish, because you're not Muslim, because you're not a Buddhist, you're probably a Christian. It's, it's so easy to think that God's probably real and Jesus probably isn't a bad idea, so I'm a Christian. Like that's not what he says. He says that what happens when we do this, we are devoted, fully giving ourselves to Jesus, his purpose, and his people. So are, are you, would you say, can you say you're devoted? Can you say that Jesus is not just a ball that you're juggling, a thing that you've added on, but, a define, but the defining point of your life? Not just boundaries that mark off things you can and can't do, but the very path you walk on that shapes your life. Would you say that you're devoted? Two more and then we're done. Done. Uh, we need to be hopeful people. He says, I can't remember what he says. I'm going to go back to it. He says, rejoice. I, I was about to just make something up and hope it fit. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Um, I, there's a quote that I just says, it says this better than anything I'd ever say, so I'm just going to read it. 
It says, thankfully, a day is coming on earth when there will be no memorials, no more remembrances of tragedies, no more cancer, no more sickness, no more sore throats, heartburn, terrorist attacks, anger or tears. All of these things will simply cease to be. And in that truth, we rejoice in hope. But for now, we live in the midst of these horrible things, overwhelmed by them with no human match for them. And though we know we're supposed to rejoice in hope, pray and be patient. We are prone to wander. Therefore, God has given us the gift of community to remind us of what we already know we've been given in Christ. A promised reason for enduring. See, this says that we're called not to be good advice givers, but to be wise counselors. See, in in life and small groups in particular, we can find a lot of times that we just want to give advice. We want to give Quick fixes, solutions for situations that can get people out of the jam. That's what advice is. Wise counsel says, I want to point you to Jesus, the promises he's made, the story he's told in the gospel, the truth in the Bible. And rather than walking you through it, I want to arrange a meeting so he can transform your life. So he can intersect you where you are right now. And you and him can walk it out together. And I'll help you as a brother or a sister. That's the difference between wise counsel and advice giving. See, just like we did in the beginning, like, God, like it, it, it's just not easy. I mean, I feel like people are either just getting over something difficult in the middle of something difficult or about to go through something difficult. God help you if you have children. I deal with a lot of them. They keep it real out there. Right, Sarah Parker? Um, I can say that because she's my sister. Um, But I mean, we just, I mean, it just happens. And we need people in our lives to remind us this isn't the end. Here's what you hope in. Here's what gives you cause to be patient. Let's pray. Finally, we want to be generous. I think this is one of the most challenging things that we see here. We see that in in the first church, if someone had a need, people said, okay, we'll just meet the need. We'll sell whatever we, we we need to sell. We'll give whatever we need to give. We'll do whatever we need to do to meet the need. Um, And because of this, because of this radical generosity, um, the community began to be transformed. uh, Because people weren't stingy with their stuff. Because they lived with open hands, not clenched fists. Things began to change. Because they were free with their treasure, time, and talent. I just want to add, like, is there anything you need to sell? Like, is there anything in your home that you need to sell so that somebody else can have their need provided for? Somebody in the community, somebody you know, somebody in your family. Is there something that you say, you know what, I'm willing to disadvantage myself this thing so that this person can have their need met? Is there something you need to sell? Is there time you need to give? Is there a talent you need to offer? Is there a skill that you, that you have that other people don't, that you need to freely offer up in service of your brother and in, to the glory of God? We need to be generous. There's, there's an old orator. I think it's, I can't remember his name. It starts with an A. But this is what he said about uh, Christians being generous people. It is Aristides. He said... Uh, if these Christians hear that one of their number is in distress for the sake of Christ's name, they render aid in his necessity. They all render aid in his necessity. 
this guy who did not believe in Jesus and was not a big fan, had to speak positively of the company of Jesus Christ because they were so on each other's team. Is, is there something you need to sell? Is there something you need to offer? Are you being generous? Are you becoming the person that God would call you to be? Austin, you can go ahead and come up, man. Um, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to respond. Um, we can go ahead and have ministry teams come up to. So we have a few ways that we can respond this morning. Um, first, we have our offering baskets right here. And so literally, we can do what we just talked about. We can say, I'm willing to actually right now disadvantage myself financially so that someone else that we've identified as a member of our community, someone uh, who has need, can have that need met. We can do that right now. You can take communion right here, and we can remember the one who brings us together, our common denominator, our uniting factor, Jesus Christ. We can remember that his body was broken and his blood was shed so that he could have a family and keep that family together. He did it so that we'd have an even playing field so there wouldn't be pros and amateurs, so there wouldn't be ins and outs, so that we would all be on the same team, eagerly following him, dependent on his grace. We can remember that by taking communion. And finally, um, we have ministry teams on the side. And here's what I want to say about this. Um, I think we can clearly say, based on what scripture says, that God has things he wants us to be and wants us to do. Um, I would ask you, the things that I talked about, reflect and say, do I need to grow in any of these things? And if you do, then, then I'm just, I'm just going to say, because I, all I did was open the Bible, and the Bible is God's word. God has spoken to you through the Bible and said, I want to grow you in this area. I want you to become uh, the person I'm calling you to be in this area. You need to be more generous. You need to be more real. You need to be a little, you need to not be so soft. You need to, whatever it is, I'm calling you to this. We can respond praying in your seat, but we, we encourage you come up to a ministry team. They'd love to pray for you, but here, here's my request that in some way, in some shape, in some form, we say we want to become these people because we want to become that community. We want to become that family because we want to transform our community. This doesn't exist just so we can become better people. It exists so that our community can be a different place that reflects the image, desire, and dreams of Jesus. And if we become these people, if we respond to his words today, I think we have a good chance of that happening. I'm going to pray and then we can respond. Jesus, we need you. We want to be the people you've called us to be, to live in the community you've called us to live in, um, to transform the place we live. We need you. Send the Holy Spirit now. Convict our hearts. Change our lives. Encourage us. Correct us. Do what you need to do to make us who you would have us be. We love you, Jesus. Amen.